Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast episode 120. I'm your host, Emily Aries, and I'm so excited to dive into today's conversation with Tiffany, who is an incredible member of our Bossed Up community, a Bossed Up Bootcamp alum, and someone who's got a really compelling story that's featured in my forthcoming book, Bossed Up, A Grown Woman's Guide to Getting Your Shit Together. And oh my God, y'all. We are two weeks away from publication day. I am so excited. I'm totally freaking out because the Bossed Up book tour is going to be so awesome. And I cannot wait to hang with more of the Bossed Up podcast community in real life. So if you haven't registered yet, make sure to check out bossedup.org book for all the events I'm hosting in Denver. D.C., Providence, Rhode Island, Hartford, Connecticut, New York City, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, California, and culminating in San Francisco. I'm so excited to see so many of y'all. And I know we've got listeners in so many more cities than that. But if you can make it out or if you know someone in those cities who should be invited, make sure your boss besties get an invitation by sharing those opportunities with them right now. But even if you can't attend one of our book tour stops where you can get a signed copy of the book, if you pre-order the book before May 21st this month, I'm gifting everyone who pre-orders this month a signed book plate that you can actually stick right in your copy to have your very own personally signed copy of the book. And I'm gifting you some fun, fabulous stickers we've developed in conjunction with the book launch and a mini bossed up manifesto. So don't delay, pre-order your book right now and cash in on those pre-order perks at bossedup.org book. Now, today's episode is related to the book in terms of how we deal with cultivating resilience. A lot of getting bossed up is about taking big risks and going for it and being the agent of change in your life. But I'd be lying if I said that that's always gonna work out, that every risk you take is gonna pan out, that there aren't gonna be stumbles along the way, and that sometimes life is gonna happen to you. You know, I'm a big believer in seeing yourself as the boss of your life, but there are times when we are genuinely fucking victimized, right? And far too many times, especially as a woman and especially as women of color in this world who face far too much violence and discrimination and all kinds of micro and not so micro aggressions. So today's conversation is going to touch upon some tough subject matter. So as a trigger warning, there are some brief descriptions of assault in today's conversation. And I have to acknowledge that There are so many incredible things that my incredible guest today has done with her career thus far that her willingness to share the stumbles and to share the obstacles she's faced along the way is extremely generous of her. 
So while these obstacles by no means define who she is, I'm so excited to have Tiffany here today to share a little bit about how she's cultivated resilience in the long road of boss it up and achieving some of her wildest ambitions. So Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Where were you when you were first joining us at Bossed Up Bootcamp up in Boston? Yeah, so 2014, I was living in New York at the time, and I was actually working as a production assistant at a television company because I had had this childhood dream that I wanted to become a journalist, more specifically like a news reporter. And what was really interesting was in this production assistant role, I was working overnight hours. And that meant that mm. I just felt like I was kind of like the zombie or I was like floating during the day. And that Boston Bootcamp, what happened with me was, I think I kind of realized that this childhood dream that I just wanted so badly wasn't manifesting in reality. Right. And I am very grateful that I had at least tried <laughs> to manifest my childhood dream. But I'm also grateful that I tried and said that this isn't working and then went to go do something else. You know, I hear from so many women, especially those who come through the doors at Boston Boot Camp, that they've achieved some form of hollow success. You know, mm. sometimes it's not just about working ourselves to the bone, which certainly was a part of your story and that you were cranking away at this journalistic career, overnight hours, you know, really sacrificing in some ways your well-being to achieve this goal. It's not always just about the hardship that comes with with the achievement itself. It's also sometimes about recognizing that what you thought you wanted isn't as fulfilling as it was cracked up to be, which can feel a little guilt-inducing, can it? Yeah. I mean, I think we become so married or we fall in love with the idea of something yeah, rather than the reality of, of what it actually is, right? And that can, you know, if you think about all the different aspects of what it is to be human. You know, you have your work and your health and your relationships and, and that ideology can actually manifest itself mm. in, in any of those categories. I know quite a few people, myself included, who have fallen in love with the idea of a person, <laughs> yeah. not the reality of that relationship. That's such a great point. Now, since Boston Bootcamp, you've gone on to really establish yourself in a variety of different media roles. Part of the challenge I remember in writing up your story for the book was that, damn girl, you're busy. You got a lot <laughs> going on. <laughs> Help us uh, sum that up, would you? Yeah. So... After I realized my childhood dream wasn't my childhood dream, I ended up taking a position at this company called Revolt TV, another media company, but back on the business side. So my background was in finance. Mm -hmm. So it's more in a finance role, you know, helping make more strategic and operational decisions. And while I was at Revolt, so it was celebrity founded. It was founded by P. Diddy. And it was actually one of the most racially diverse companies that I've ever worked at. Mm. And it made me, you know, really cognizant of exploring what kind of impact I could make in that diversity conversation. So I started what is now my full hustle as a side hustle. It's called Diversibility. And it is a social enterprise that is focused on kind of rebranding disability through community. So how can we take a somewhat socially isolating and exclusionary experience and root it in this idea or this feeling of you're not alone? Right. And once we have that core sense of belonging, or at least some sense of belonging, 
we can actually start to meet more of our Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like now, what's the next hurdle? What's the next hurdle after that? Now that Mm. we know that we have people who are rooting for us. So most of what I'm doing these days is very much disability related. I feel like I'm like, full-time advocacy efforts, full-time diversity, full-time focusing on how can we increase access and opportunity to more members of the disability community. And remind us how you came into this work too, because, you know, being at Revolt certainly was an eye-opener in terms of the intersection of business and diversity, not just amongst age and race, but also ability. Tell us a little bit about how your identity comes into play there and and Mm -hmm. what really draws you to these issues. Sure. So for me, so about a little over 20 years ago, 21 years ago, I was involved in a car accident where my dad, who was driving, unfortunately passed away. And I acquired what's called a brachial plexus injury. It's, It's just a pretty severe nerve injury in my right arm. Mm. And this happened when I was nine years old. And, you know, what's interesting is I actually didn't label the car accident as trauma until I started doing this advocacy work. Mm. I didn't know, and I'm still trying to figure out what grief looks like, you know, two decades later, still discovering what resilience looks like two decades later. But I will say a lot of my adolescent years and my adult experiences have been very influenced by this event that happened when I was nine. And I think in the first 12 years after the accident, no one really asked me about my disability. So I never Mm. learned how to talk about it for myself. And whenever I did talk about it, I would always talk about it in a way where I was a victim of my story, or it was very much rooted in shame, or Mm. I just wanted people to pity me. And when I first came up with the idea for diversity, which actually happened in college, I started to wonder why I was living with that energy for so long, right? And I was actually talking with someone the other day and I was like, you know what? I, I really don't remember what the years after the car accident up until I went to college, so like a good eight, nine year period. Like I don't remember what that looked like because I felt like I was a shell of a human. Similar to what you talked about, like feeling really like hollow. Um, yeah. And the first Diversibility 1.0 came when Mm -hmm. I was in college. And there's something called the big eight aspects of social identity. And these are kind of like unchanging aspects of diversity. So it ranges from gender to sexual orientation to nationality, race, religion, age, economic status, and disability. And it was the first time I had ever seen disability or ability included in a list of identifiers. Right, And it was the first time I thought like, oh, my brachial plexus injury, my disability, it's not just a medical diagnosis that I go to the doctor to like do physical therapy. It is a part of who I am. It is a part of this eight slice pie, however large or small the slices are. And that kind of got me wondering, how come we're not spending more time exploring what this aspect of our identity looks like for us? Right. Especially, it seems like your take has been on a celebratory way in more of a community pride than a victim framework like you've discussed. Yes. Like when I think about diversity, I think of African-American Heritage Month. I think of Latino Heritage Month. There are literal parades celebrating different identifiers. And when it comes to ability, it seems even on my podcast, like it hasn't been given the airtime it's due, right? It doesn't always get included 
ironically, in the inclusion conversation as much as it should. Mm-hmm. So bring us up to speed on where diversity is now, now that it's full time for you after, you know, first iterating in college and then really becoming a side hustle in your time in the media company Revolt. What does full-time Tiffany working on diversity look like? Yeah, it looks like a lot of different things. So I'll say it's pretty much like four different things. So one is kind of like core diversity. And diversity kind of have, has two arms to it. One is our grassroots advocacy efforts, continuing to build our community. When I first started diversity, I couldn't find anything that did these three things. One was exactly what you talked about, disability pride the celebration of disability as a part of our intersectional identity. Number Mm. two was I couldn't find anything that was cross-disability. And the thing about disability is it's this word that kind of describes a lot of things that are unrelated to each other. But there Mm. is a similar lived and a similar shared experience of what it is like to be othered or what it is like to feel so different or to have to ask for permission to show up in public spaces or wherever, you know. And then the third was I couldn't find any organizations that brought in non-disabled people into the conversation. And if you think about it here in the US, I believe the stat is about one in four Americans has a disability. And so that's a lot of people, but also how can we bring in the other three-fourths into the conversation as well? Because a lot of times, those of us who are disabled, we don't have access to the decision-making platforms, to the rooms where things are happening. And if we are out of sight, we are out of mind. So that's kind of like diversity's arm. And so one part's grassroots. The other part is now that we've actually built our community, how can we go and share as many different diverse disability stories as possible? So that's you know conferences sure. or universities or corporations. And then how can we also launch... A part of me sees diversity kind of as like a talent incubator. So that means everyone who kind of works on our team is looking yeah. to gain the skills to take the next step in their career. We do have this success story where, you know, I served as someone's job reference and now they're, you know, kicking ass in their current role, right? And that's the ultimate goal is in- inclusion. For you as part of Boston as well, like I think you understand how important it is sometimes to supplement our work with paid speaking engagements. So a lot of times for us, we're serving as, you know, the kicking off point for a lot of our community members speaking careers. You know, maybe they've done a couple things. Maybe they haven't gotten paid yet. Maybe they're looking for more exposure. And so for us, you know, we're really able either through our own events that we host or through some of these partnerships that we have able to kind of take their speaking career to the next level. I love that. That's the first arm. Then the second thing that we have done, which was launched about two years ago to this month, is a disability grant that is fully funded by disabled people. It's kind of like a giving circle. So every single month, we'll give out $1,000 to a disability project. And this is global. And so to date, we have awarded over $25,000 in grants that have been fully funded by disabled people to disability projects that will, you know, hopefully benefit other people within our community. And we've been able to award grants in six countries, which is really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Then the third arm was, I have just finished up working with the city of San Francisco to help plan for the first municipally funded disability cultural center in the country, maybe the world. And that's actually really exciting because the disability rights movement started here in the Bay Area, started in Berkeley with Ed Roberts. 
And as quickly as San Francisco and our country is changing, I think that a lot of this history and a lot of the celebration of history of, of a lot of underrepresented groups kind of gets swept under the rug. And mm. this disability cultural center, I think for us, you know, first of all, I just feel so proud thinking about how I live in a city that is as progressive as San Francisco, but is also trying to be as aware of social justice and social issues and wanting to elevate those communities as well. And then the last thing we're doing, I'll just touch on it briefly, is we're in the process of piloting a workforce development program to see if we can get more disabled people into the Salesforce ecosystem. Salesforce Mm. here in San Francisco is the number one employer. And this isn't necessarily working at Salesforce, but they have created this cloud-based platform for anyone who uses customers to be able to track them. So there are tons of opportunities. And and I think now with the future of work, you know, a lot of these future work policies are actually very well catered toward disabled people as well. So there's going to be a lot of demand and a lot of jobs created. So we're trying to figure out how can we get more disabled people into these roles as well. So I want to ask you more about the decision to take diversibility full time. And this is interesting because the story of yours that we chose to really zoom in on in the book was about when you first moved to San Francisco Mm -hmm. and you were working to establish the San Francisco office for a co-living space. Things did not go your way. We're going to dive into that in a second. But at one point in your interview that's included in the book, you said to me, I never started diversibility to do this full time because I think real inclusion is having a disability and being in the mainstream workforce. Mm -hmm. Your very presence is your advocacy. You said, so although I loved it, I'd never imagined working on diversity issues full time. Now, clearly this is like, it's been a, a, a year or so since we had that conversation. There may be even more that was ultimately included in the book. I love what you're saying about workforce development because I think so many of us can acknowledge that our companies are getting a little wiser when it comes to inclusion along the lines of gender and race and age. But we have more work to do, clearly, when it comes to inclusion along disability and ability. So what has been the personal battle there in terms of flipping your career from essentially like finance kick-ass young financial uh, hotshot to media on the rise, you know, media mogul in the making to now pivoting to diversity full-time? So one thing I have been thinking a lot about is Alice Wong, who is the founder of the Disability Visibility Project, another really incredible disability advocate. I met up with her a little over two years ago while I was still working full-time at this co-living company. Mm. And I was trying to figure out if I should just dissolve diversibility and move all of our community members over to another one of the communities that existed. And she said two things to me. One was she said, Tiffany, I think that there's space for everyone. And I just really love that she said that because I find that within underrepresented communities, within disability, within women, sometimes there seems to be a little bit of a scarcity mindset. And that's kind of where, you know, the queen bee that people talk about, at least on the women's side comes out, which is, you know, this is the only opportunity I have. I'm the only women in this room. Like I need to be a pioneer and kick ass and do all this stuff. And and I'm the only one who can be there because they only allotted one spot for me. And when Alice said to me, there's space Mm. for everyone, it really changed my mindset. And this is how we operate at Diversity too, to one of abundance. 
which is how can we create more opportunities for as many people as possible? Because, you know, when I think about that gif of of a woman holding another woman up and it just like is on repeat. So that was number one. Number two from that conversation was Alice said to me, she said, Tiffany, what are you going to do with the privilege and the power that you've been given to have a voice within your community? And that is kind of the mantra that I've been sitting on in this transition to working on diversity full-time. And I think what's been interesting, so now I've been a little over two years full-time on diversity. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about how that came to be. But I remember when I first transitioned to working on diversity full-time, it seemed more of kind of like a transition for me. Like, oh, I'll do this temporarily right. until I find my next thing. And then as I started to pick up more disability projects, I was like, oh, my community is giving me the platform to make whatever impact I need to make while I have the microphone. There's another quote from a professor named Robert Bullard. And he said, the fight for justice is a marathon relay. And what that means to me, Mm. as I translate it to my own work, is the Ed Roberts era, you know, where the disability, the modern disability rights movement started, They are handing the baton to me, and now I have the baton. And so what do I want the world to look like when I hand the baton off to the next generation? And so the thing is, we'll never stop fighting for justice. And you can also apply this to other social justice movements. We'll never stop fighting, but it will just look different generation to generation. And so now that I have my baton or my microphone or or whatever whatever (laughs) you want it to be, what am I going to do with that power? And I think that is the place that I'm sitting in now. But I still very much... First of all, I love that I said your presence is your advocacy. And so when I look at right. myself or, you know, and sometimes a lot of people ask me like, what can I do? And I have another quote where it's, you know, you just have to do something. Your social media presence, your digital presence, your voice, where you're spending your money, those are all power. And so if you decide your advocacy is going to be full-time in the workplace, that's what you got to do. If your advocacy is making a donation, that is fine too. And I think it's really important not to criticize each other's advocacy because everyone has their own situation. You know, and I feel very grateful and very privileged that I can work on diversity full-time. And that's kind of where I am now. And, and it's been such an interesting journey with diversity because in a way, it's the trajectory of Tiffany's growth and her coming into her own voice and figuring out what her story is and, and putting all the puzzle pieces together But then alongside that is this creation of this advocacy effort where we're building this community of other people who want to explore and share their stories as well. Yeah. And I have to ask you, I mean, what you're doing is clearly incredible. And I think taking that long view, that marathon relay view of it is so important. How did you get to this place with that perspective from the Tiffany who was grinding it out, you know, hadn't taken a vacation in a year, who was pursuing this gold doggedly, even if it meant working nights. And specifically, and when you moved to San Francisco, right? Because you were starting this office for a co-living space, things didn't go your way. Tell us about how you persevered in this long-term goal. So I have just recently gotten into audiobooks. I have always had this like thirst for learning. And I read Lean In while I was still working in finance. And Sheryl Sandberg spoke at the bank that I was working at. And while I was at Revolt, I very much had like a lean-in mindset. And to be honest, Revolt, 
thinking about Tiffany's aspirations at the time, Revolt on paper was everything that I wanted. I had a director level role. Mm. I was sitting in on board meetings. I had my own office. One of my stipulations was I wanted to be some version of my authentic self. And working in such a diverse company, it really celebrated that, really let you be yourself. By the end of my time there, I was like, is this it? It really made me think that like, we as humans are not one singular experience. We were talking about definitions of success earlier. And I think what's so interesting to me was what I was doing at Revolt, working on diversibility as a passion project on the side, that was success at that moment in time. But the thing is, success is this ever-evolving definition, right? And it's so personal to each of us. So by the end of my time at Revolt, I was like, I just feel like I'm kind of underutilized. I'm wondering like what the next challenge is going to be. And when I would meet up with my friends for dinner and I would tell them about my work, they're like, Tiffany, you know, the skills that you have, you know, they hired you because you have a very specific financial skill set. And the people who are mm-hmm. asking you to do certain things don't have that skill set. And so they're giving you things that they think are hard to them, but are easy to you. And I thought that that was an interesting check as well, which is, you know, no one really understands what the nature of your role is unless you're super vocal about it. And at that time, you know, my boss had left and there was a lot of transition happening in the company. So I didn't really feel like I had mentors or I had someone who was really helping me think through what my trajectory at that company looked like. Then I was thinking, wow, maybe this is a time when I should explore what it will look like to work on diversibility full time. And so I dipped my toe in. But during that time, I was applying for roles that I thought were really interesting. And I have been pretty enamored with San Francisco for, I want to say, maybe prior to moving here for a good like two years. I just felt like the weather, everyone talked about how great the weather was out here. I had just never really like spent time on the West Coast before. And so I ended up getting this job, you know, to launch the San Francisco Arm of This Co-Living Company. And I ended up getting another job offer the day after to run one of these work from anywhere in these really nice vacation places all over the world. And I've always had like a long-term view in terms of my career. The next place I move, I want that to be the place that I'm going to be. And so I thought that in a way, this work from anywhere company was like, you're kind of further perpetuating this idea of not putting roots anywhere, which is good for some, but wasn't what I was looking for. But what was interesting was what was missing from both of these job opportunities was that both of them weren't perfect. And a lot of my friends, you know, I call them my like board of advisors when I was making the decision, told me, Tiffany, like there's a third option, which is to take neither. And what I thought was really interesting, and I relay some of this back to like my childhood experiences of having a disability and wanting to be accepted and wanting to be understood, was when I was presented with these two options, that third option not to take either of them was not an option to me because someone wanted me. So I ended up taking it knowing that it wasn't perfect picked up all my stuff, moved out to San Francisco. And this was from New York, right? You had been doing the New York thing. Yeah. It was a big move. And what's funny is I think that I was a little bit burnt out by New York. And it wasn't my professional life because I wasn't feeling super challenged there. It was my social life. Like no matter what you're doing in New York, you're working hard. Like New York to me is all about ambition. It's all about hustle. And so I was there. I was like kind of doing this nine to five thing. I was okay with it. I was doing this side hustle diversibility, which was like, booming and growing really quickly and going really well. And we're having all these partnerships and working with the mayor's office. 
you know, just like living this lifestyle. And so I was like, you know what, maybe this move to San Francisco will be like a good lifestyle change. The role is a community role, which is something that I've wanted to do more of. So maybe that'll be good. So picked up all my stuff, moved out here. Within, I want to say, two to three months of moving out here, I got assaulted randomly by a person on the street. And it was interesting because it was on my commute to work. I was getting ready to dial in to our weekly all-hands company meeting. And then this person just came out of the blue and, you know, hit me, you know, didn't take anything. And I remember I kind of just fell over when he did. And I looked back at him and he made this gesture like, what are you going to do about that? And I just remember kind of just like being in shock. I was still, I was dialed into this call and I was like, someone just like punched me in the face. Like, and then I like got back in. Which by the way, happens more often than people want to believe. One of the women I follow on social media just this past weekend posted something on stories saying, wow, a total stranger just punched me in the face, like on the street. And the next slide on her Instagram story was someone in her comments calling her out as a liar, saying it makes it sound like someone just randomly punched you in the face. Like, you should be careful with making such crazy accusations. And she was like, that is exactly what just happened. Yeah, I just want to draw attention to the fact that everyday violence is something that women are way more likely to experience. And so I'm really sorry that happened to you. But that feeling of disbelief is by no means unusual or irrational. I guess I'll say two things to that. And one is, in the process, it took me a really long time to kind of recover from what had happened because I didn't know why. Right. And when you don't know why something happened, there's just no closure. You know, if someone from Diversability came and punched me in the face and was like, I don't like what you're doing, where you stand for, then I'm like, okay, this is why. You know, talking about resilience, like, I think it would have been easier for me to bounce back from something like that than knowing that anytime I walk on the street, who knows who's going to do what, right? Then number two, what I thought was really interesting, I just spent a weekend in nature with a couple of friends this past weekend. And we had this like conversation deck and that had these different questions. And one of the questions was, what is one of the hardest lessons that you've learned? And for me, coming out of this assault, I had so many people share similar stories of how something like that has happened with them, people getting hit with someone's shoe, Mm. you know, and then like moving to another neighborhood in San Francisco. But I still couldn't have felt more alone in that experience. You know, and it's so interesting because so much of my work is rooted on this, you are not alone. You know, we all have had these experiences, but I was in charge of my own recovery and healing and grief after that experience. I want to jump in there because... I know that after you experienced a sort of out of the blue trauma, you found your way into therapy really for the first time as an adult, right? And I wonder if that commonality of at any moment things could go awry triggered some of that past trauma that you'd experienced in your car accident as a child, the loss of your father, and the things that followed in your career kind of felt, like you had said, without reason when just a few months later Mm -hmm. you found yourself getting laid off from that position. What was going through your mind when you were processing all this in therapy, whether it was the initial moment in time when you became disabled or 
the re-traumatizing that you experienced with this on-the-street assault and then kind of an out-of-the-blue yeah. layoff. So I think what was really hard about this assault was that as someone who you know became disabled as a young age, one of the things I talk about with the disability experience is, you know, all we really want is autonomy, some version of our independence or interdependence, our humanity and our dignity, right? And so because of my experiences right. as a child, I've become really hyper-independent. And for this assault to happen as an adult, where I don't have the cushions of my family making decisions for me and, and all these other things... I just felt so violated. And as someone who was so independent for something like that to happen to me, I just started to like question everything, you know, like maybe I shouldn't be living by myself. You know, maybe I should always like have someone. And, you know, some of these, again, are colored by this experience as a woman too, which is like, maybe I should always ask someone like have a buddy with me. But I think going through the process of trying to find some kind of trauma recovery efforts really triggered some of these childhood experiences. Working with a therapist was really interesting for me because I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to start, you know, and I was super stressed at work. Mm. So when I took this job in San Francisco, I was the only hire. And so I kind of was this like Swiss army knife, jack of all trades. I can definitely label it now. I was like working myself until burnout, you know? And then I was trying to deal with this trauma, but like trying not to let it impact my work, but it probably definitely was because I just, you know, especially right after the trauma happened, I just wasn't in a good place. And I thought that my solution was to work. So I went back to work and then like I'm seeing some of the people who are living in our homes and I'm just like crying in front of them. But I was like the only one there. So it was like, again, it was like, I'm here by myself. Like, where is my support system in terms of work? And they were remote and some of them came in to like try and help. But but yeah, then after about six months of working there, I got laid off. And to me at the time, it was really surprising. And I think that you know, now kind of reflecting on it, like my manager was flying into town more. So, so maybe there were signs that I just thought were normal managerial relationships that, that my manager had seen as, mm. you know, kind of like improvement, trying to put me on like an improvement plan or something. But I'm a very like literal person. And so within my last couple of months there, I was very vocal about wanting to get some constructive feedback because I felt like I was getting really great feedback from the people who are living in our community. But I just wanted feedback on like how I could be better in all different aspects of my job. And I remember I had therapy the same day that I got laid off. And when I told my therapist, she was like, wow, Tiffany, like you have been coming in here every single week talking about how you have been wanting to get more feedback from your manager. And then you just get fired. And she's like, it just doesn't, it seems like something is missing there. And I remember even in my termination meeting, I was like, hey, I've been talking to a couple of people here about how difficult it is to get feedback. And so I was just wondering as like one of my last things here, if I could still, you know, take you up on this offer to like get feedback. And my manager was like, I'll think about it, but then ultimately ended up not deciding to provide the feedback. So yeah, again, it was kind of this theme of like, I don't know why this happened. Was I missing something? It was just so out of the blue. And it feels like, again, there's no closure there. Yes. 
So you pivoted into growing diversity full time. That's what fascinates me. And that's what I want to think about. Like, what were the key components from you going from this really dark, uncertain place of dealing with the trauma of your childhood as an adult for the first time, dealing with this absurd random assault from the street, and then getting laid off on top of it. It feels like it's such a one-two punch at a really inopportune time. How did you make the transition into bossing up in the most major of ways with all you've been up to with diversibility? Like, what did you call upon in terms of resiliency strategies to help you focus on that progress, not perfection mentality and, and getting you to where you are today? Yes. So I will say it looks like it's super awesome, but I don't know if you feel this as well, but advocacy work is really hard Yeah, because I am going out and I'm advocating for my community and then I'm going home and I'm advocating for myself. Yeah, And I talk to a lot of people about their desire for purpose and meaning, and I have so much of it, but it is, you know, compassion fatigue, activism, burnout. Those are real things. And I have definitely kind of tapped those boundaries, those extremes. Mm. But now I feel more grounded because I need to set containers to say, this is my space to work on my physical therapy and my physical health and my mental Mm. health. And I'm very vocal about that in my community. After I got laid off, I think it made me kind of like reset and say, let me reach out to some of my friends and some of my relationships here and just like let them know that I'm here and let them know that like I've had a really hard time here mm-hmm. and I just need a sense of community right now. It sounds to me almost like in this most recent chapter of your career and life journey, you have really walked the walk when it comes to not just advocating for what, you know, your community as, as it relates to diversity needs in the world, but also really being an advocate for yourself, mm-hmm. whether it's being more mindful and deliberate about cultivating a community around you or taking that time to preserve and protect your physical and mental health and well-being. Yes. You know, how did you make that commitment to yourself? What does that look like? What advice would you give to someone who feels burnt out, who feels victimized and wants to really take the reins over their own care as they pursue these ambitious goals? Yeah, it's super complex. And so I guess the best way for me to answer this is to say, so in 2018, diversity probably had its best year yet, but I felt really emotionally worn down. And there was a part of me in 2018 that thought like, you know, I'm just going to go back into the workforce and like get like a, a nine to five. In reflecting on that, what I realized I was trying to do was I always hid behind my work. Mm. I always used it as an excuse why I wasn't preserving my mental health, why I wasn't doing physical therapy, you know, like why I wasn't like focusing on kind of like the physical and emotional and mental manifestation of my trauma. And you can see this in my coping mechanisms as well. Right. Like, right? I guess part of this journey for me has been in 2018 when I was feeling really emotionally worn down because I was like revisiting all of these like doctor's appointments to see like what types of innovations have there been in terms of like brachial plexus surgeries or like who knows. And that was just really hard because every doctor 
would want me to retell them my story of the car accident. And when you're in a room with someone who says yes or no to surgery, it just feels like stakes are much higher. And my relationship with like hospitals and medical professionals takes me back to my nine-year-old self. And I would just find myself like bawling when I told this story over and over again. And I tell it in my work, right? And so it was so interesting to me, again, thinking about this work-life integration, which is here I am like going out and sharing my story of childhood trauma to these extremely large, you know, populations of people in a way that is packaged in a way so people understand that all of us have these lived experiences that we can connect on. But then behind those doors, I'm reliving this story in a way that is letting me release all of the emotional pain I need to let go of. It's a good reminder that those of us who are working on behalf of the issues we care a lot about, and it is a privileged position to be in, but that we're processing at the same time. You know, we're growing with our community. And I always try to be pretty candid about that on this very podcast, but it's hard. It's this idea of the lift as you climb mentality that you don't have to be a finished product to turn around and and help others along the same journey. And having that, I think just that perspective of self-compassion is so key to cultivating resilience along your way, right? Because it's never two steps forward, no steps back. Sometimes there's going to be, you know, road bumps along the way. Yeah. I mean, I think this idea of like, I have just been learning over throughout this whole journey about how important it is for me to check myself. And I relate this to my work too, right? Like most of the people I talk to don't care about disability the way I do, right? So I need Mm. to check myself, you know, how can I meet them where they are? And then the other part is, I just think back about this journey and I think about all of these kind of like core moments when I was ready to run away because it was hard. And I will say that part of the reason why I am doing this disability work full time, and again, very much rooted in a place of privilege is that it is giving me the space and the time for me to focus on my physical, emotional, and mental health. And I have never done that for myself before. And I think it's interesting when you read to me that quote about like, my advocacy is my presence in the workplace that is coming from a person or like a Tiffany who wasn't willing to do all of the work. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at your personal investment in yourself, in your own mental health, in your own physical health, in your own sort of spiritual well-being as this thing you could avoid and just fill with lots of work, (laughs) right? Like we could just, you know, it's a lot easier to just keep your nose to the grindstone and burn yourself out in the traditional sense than sometimes, you know, it is to invest in the hard work, the hard questions of making yourself a priority. My bet, and I'd be curious to hear where your chips would fall on this, Tiffany, but my bet is that you are going to see an acceleration if you haven't already in that investment paying off. Right? Yeah. All the success you're seeing with diversibility, the the amplification work you're doing, the acceleration of your progress there is directly related to you taking the time to really invest in yourself. And that's the promise I want to make in this book, but also in the Boss Up community writ large, which is doing right for yourself, doing right by yourself is not just morally good, but it's also strategic. Yes. And I think it took getting almost to the point of burnout to really make that investment in myself. And I think one other thing I'll say is 
I had a friend or a new friend come to me and she's like, Tiffany, like, how did you get to be like so assertive and like so confident like this and so vocal about the things that you care about or vocal about your needs? The way I responded to her is I said, I have been thinking about this a lot. And it, again, unfortunately or fortunately, it comes from a place of privilege. It comes because I know that I am number one to myself and I am in a place where I can be vocal and that I feel like I have people who are hearing me. I also feel like I have nothing to lose. And not everyone is in that situation. And maybe tomorrow I won't be in that situation, you know? And so <laughs> I don't know. I like this nothing to lose feeling. It's so familiar to me. But I feel like the flip side of loss, the flip side of trauma, which any of us can relate to, right? Whatever it is that you've survived in your life can remind you that at the end of the day, none of us have anything to lose. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you have yeah. overcome obstacle after obstacle already. And we can goddamn it go for it, you know? And I'm not saying it's that simple because you're right. There is privilege involved and, and the finances of pursuing it are complicated to say the least. But that idea that we have nothing to lose, that inevitability that pulls us towards something we want to be a part of, that can be done part-time, full-time, side hustle style, or as your advocacy and, and activism in your life. I would encourage folks listening to this, especially who are inspired by your story, like I am, Tiffany, to really take stock of what we have to lose. Because at the end of the day, all this movement work hinges on our willingness to say, I'm going to bet it all. And I'm going to go all in on myself and on my community and what I believe in and, and see what happens, you know, without guarantees. Well, in the intro, it's interesting. You mentioned something about kind of like definitions of success and like the way that we kind of drill ourselves into the ground. And I think for me, my definition of success has really changed to when I look in the mirror, do I like what I see? And if you think about like resilience or like people who have felt like victims in their stories or are survivors, a lot of those narratives are meant to make us feel small. And so much of the work that I'm doing this year is how can I fill my space? How can I fill my shell? How can I fill that hollowness? How can I fill like the body that I'm in and embody that in everything that I do? I love it. Tiffany, thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. And, you know, to the listeners hearing this, you're kind of getting an inside sneak peek of the Boss Up book, but also a deeper dive <laughs> than we can ever cover in one story included in the book. So I really appreciate the generosity with, of your time, Tiffany, and your candor and just in sharing your journey. You are such an inspiration. Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. And always great to catch up with you. To learn more and get links to all the show notes related to today's conversation, head to bossedup.org slash episode 120. And now it's time for today's Boss Move Moment of the Week. Hey, Emily. This is Alicia in Minneapolis. I met with someone with this professional development network that I'm a part of called Young Nonprofit Professionals Network about writing a blog post for them. And it's going to be great. She is really excited about having me write for them, and my posts are going to be all about what it's like to be a woman in the nonprofit sector dealing with the patriarchal systems that have been put in place and been around forever and starting those discussions. Congratulations, boss. I am so proud of you. We are cheering you on. We are rooting for you, and I am 
so thrilled with all the badass ways you've bossed up. Thank you for calling in to share your come up story and inspire so many of us to keep Boston in our own pursuits too. If you've got a boss move to share, or if you want to call in a career conundrum for me to tackle on the podcast next, give my hotline ring at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. And I recently realized that some of my international listeners might not be able to use that number. So all of you bosses, I'm looking at you Canadians and Australians and all the European bosses and South American bosses who are tuning in. You can share a boss move by simply recording a voice memo on your phone and emailing them in to info at bossedup.org. Thanks so much for tuning in, bosses. And please share today's episode if you found it inspiring, because I want to make sure that more women hear about the incredible resilience of women like Tiffany and the 15 incredible Bossed Up community members like Tiffany who are featured in the Bossed Up book. So once more, if you haven't pre-ordered your book yet, make sure you get on that before May 21st to get in on all those pre-order perks today. You can find all the details and help spread the word, help get the news out that my book is just about out and the book tour is about to kick off at bossedup.org book. I hope to see many of you on tour, but in the meantime, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.